might not know me. I'm Tyler. I am living in Houston now with my wife, Rachel, and uh, we're looking to move to seminary uh, in Orlando. Uh, we've been in California. Now we're going to be going to Orlando to finish up at Reform Theological. And uh, Paul asked me while we were in town to come. I actually saw him last month, and I asked if he would preach instead, and he wouldn't. Um, so, uh, But we'll release the kindergartens and first graders if they go ahead and go. And um, I actually got into town on Friday, and I first went to uh, see my sister. And while I was there seeing my sister, I ran to someone who goes to church here. And she asked me, how are you doing, House Houston? The next thing she said was, oh, you're preaching on Sunday. Well, you better do a good job, because Paul's been bringing it. <laughs> no lie, that's the first thing she said to me. So, um, anyways, if she's here, she's feeling conviction right now. I haven't seen her yet. Um, so uh, I don't know what to do with that. Um, we're just going to kind of go with it, and uh, hopefully everything turns out all right. Um, we're going to be in Deuteronomy 8. Um, how many of you uh, are partakers of Starbucks? Are you a Starbucks person, like you're addicted, um, you're, you're there once a week? Let's say addiction's once a week, because that'll add up, you know, anyone here who's Starbucks? Okay, all right. How many people here are like, he's got double hands, all right. Um, how many people here are, I will never pay a dollar fifty for a cup of coffee. Yeah, there we go. Let's see, yeah, they, they, all right. Well, there's some interesting news about Starbucks. What's going on with the company? And uh, Howard Schultz, who's now taken back over, has written out this proposal saying what is happening with the company. If you have visited recently, you might have seen some changes with the logo, with their whole color scheme. And here's what's happening. And this is what he says. Over the past 10 years, in order to achieve the growth, the development, and scale necessary to grow from less than 1,000 stores to 13,000 stores and beyond, we have had to make a series of decisions that, in retrospect, have led to the watering down of the Starbucks experience and what some might call the commoditization of our brand. He goes on and he says, One of the results has been stores that no longer have the soul of the past and reflect the chain of stores versus the warm feeling of a neighborhood store. I take full responsibility myself, but we desperately need to look into the mirror and realize it's time to get back to the core and make the changes necessary to evoke the heritage, the tradition, and the passion that we all have for the true Starbucks experience. He says, I have said for 20 years that our success is not an entitlement, and now it's proving to be a reality. Let's be smarter about how we are spending our time, money, and resources. Let's get back to the core. So what's Howard Schultz saying? He's saying what we started with, what we're known for, what was the Starbucks experience back in 1980, when we first began this thing, we've changed. We're no longer who we were. We've forgotten our image. We've forgotten who we are. We haven't remembered the past. And if we're ever going to get back to where we were, we have to remember where we came from. We've forgotten. And as we enter Deuteronomy, this is where we're going to find us in Deuteronomy 8. We're going to see spiritual amnesia with the Israelites. 
the etymology of the word amnesia is forgetfulness, not to recall, not to think, or to remember. So spiritual forgetfulness is to forget God, to not recall God, to not remember God, to not think about God. And that's what we have here as we see this story unfold in Deuteronomy 8. So if you have your Bibles, let's go back a couple pages in Deuteronomy 4, and we're just going to kind of set the stage for what's happening here. Uh, we're going to be in Deuteronomy 4, in verses 5. And he says this in Deuteronomy 4, verse 5. See, I have taught you statutes and rules, as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of all peoples, who when they hear all the statues will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us, whenever we call upon Him? So here's what's happening here. Israel is called to be a people called out, to be set apart, to obey God, that the nations would look on and say, who is such a God that is near to this people? Let's read on. Chapter 6, verse 23. So flip one page. He says this, And he brought us out from there, that he might... Bring us and give us the land that he swore to give our fathers, and that the Lord commanded us to do all these statues, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day, and it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all of this commandment before us, the Lord our God has commanded us. So he's saying, I'm calling out to be a people. The theme of Deuteronomy is covenant allegiance. That you would be set apart to God because He has set you apart. He has chosen you. And as we enter Deuteronomy 8, and as we start in verse 2, we see this. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness. That He might humble you, testing you to know what is your heart whether you would keep his commandments or not. So, they've come through the wilderness, and now they're entering the land. We've set the stage, and now the curtain opens, and we read here in verse 11. He says this, Take care, lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today. So, as we're looking here and we see that the spiritual amnesia that's going to come upon the people of Israel, we have three post-its, three reminders to pull us out of that forgetful thinking. Three post-it notes that he gives us. It's God's command, God's resume, and God's warning. And we see here God's command. The one thing I'm going to tell you is that Spiritual amnesia, forgetting God, is the most critical spiritual condition that you can put yourself in. It's spiritual ICU, if that helps you think about it. Because the problem is that forgetting God is not something that you can see in your life or do in your life, but it's the effects around everything in your life that you will see and do. 
everything that you do will be affected because you forget God. And it's one of these things, it's a gradual thing. It's not just going to happen one day and you fall off the mountain. Um, I say this hesitantly, but I did surf, okay? So for those of you who are in surfing, don't come up to me afterwards and go, do you know what the swell is today? I don't know. Um, I don't know. Uh, I had a board at one point, so I don't know if that constitutes me as a surfer or not. Or if you surf once a week, I don't know what the stipulation is. But I went out surfing when I was in college one time. The, the waves were big, you know, like the one time out of the year. And we went out, and uh, as we're out there, I'm with a buddy of mine, and we're sitting on our boards, which you mainly do when you go out surfing in Wilmington. And, um, and we're sitting there, and we're just talking. And obviously, the waves are big, the understood is strong, but what you don't realize is as you're talking to him, I have moved a half a mile down the beach, and I didn't even notice And that's what spiritual amnesia will do to you. Is when you forget God and He's moved from your plain sight, you will move down the beach and you won't even know it. And that's what C.S. Lewis tells us here in Screwtape Letters. If you've read Screwtape Letters, you'll know this. Uh, Screwtape Letters is a story about two demons conversing back and forth about how to take out Christians. And this is what he says here as screw tape is informing Wormwood. You will say that these are very small sins and doubtless, like all young tempsters, you are anxious to be able to report spectacular wickedness. So they want to tell the great sins, the great pride in their life, all these magnificent things, but take out the little things, take out the little sins. And here's what screw tape says. But do remember, the only thing that matters is the extent to which you separate the man from the enemy. The enemy is God in the story. It does not matter how small the sins are provided that there is a cumulative effect is to edge the the man away from the light and out into nothing. Murder is no better than cards if they do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one. The safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, the soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without mind stones, without signposts. Your affectionate uncle, screw tape. The gradual decline, the gradual forgetfulness is what's going to lead you to spiritual bankruptcy. And that's what we see here uh, in the Founders' Day that Christ Community Church has. When Paul says that we have a Founders' Day, is to remember where we came from. And he gives the story of how you, you dig the fence, and you get one quarter meter off, and next thing you know, you're three feet from where you started. And that's the goal here, is to remind ourselves that God is everything, that we can't forget that. In the great book John Bunyan did, The Pilgrim's Progress, The great heart character describes the same thing. He says, Your father had that battle with Apollyon at a place yonder before us in a narrow passage just beyond forgetful green. And indeed, that place is the most dangerous place in all these parts. For if at any time the pilgrims meet with a brunt is when they forget what favors they have received and how unworthy they are of them. So he's saying, don't forget. Don't forget that God is your God. 
And he goes on here in verse 12. He says this, Lest that when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied. So we see here that Israel is li- going to be living in plenty. They're not going to have any struggles. The stocks, the herds, everything's multiplied. Gold, silver, multiplied. Everyone is full. Everyone is eating healthy. They are living in plenty. And I think for us sometimes that we forget as Americans that we live in plenty in a way the world does not. Here's a simple fact for you. The average American income is $41,000. The average annual income for someone living in a Malawi is $171. $41,000 average, $171. We live in plenty. We don't live in want. We live in excess almost. And here's the problem that we see here. What God is saying is, you're going to forget me for all these created things. You're not going to worship me. You're going to worship all this stuff. You're going to bow down in allegiance to all this stuff that you have. All these created things that you're just going to make ultimate. And you're going to find your acceptance and your approval in all those things. You're going to find that your acceptance and your approval in your job, in your money, in your relationships, in your beauty, in your appearance. Anything other than me. Here's a test for you. If you live your life asking this question... If God was to take me, or to take this from me, I don't know what I'll do. I cannot live without blank, blank, blank in my life. I can't live without my kids. I can't live without my wife. I can't live without my husband. If you find yourself saying that, you might be dealing with this. If you find yourself saying, I will be happy when I get a better job, more money, a better husband, a better wife, better kids, which might be the true. If you find yourself saying that, you could be dealing with spiritual amnesia. You could be forgetting all that God has for you in Himself. And it's not God. It's your beauty. It's your money. It's your power. It's the acceptance of your spouse, your job. And Israel is defined by that. They're, they're looking for all these things to satisfy them that will never satisfy them. If you're ever at the beach, which most of you have been at least, I would hope, since you're living in the greatest place in the world, have you ever seen a, a jogger running up and down the beach? Am I the only one who's ever seen that? Why does the jogger, when he's thirsty, tired, and sweating, stop and not drink at the water that's standing right there next to him? Well, because he knows it, it doesn't taste good. And it won't satisfy. He has this endless water that he knows won't satisfy. And yet, like us, like Israel, we continually run back to all these things that we know won't satisfy us. We keep running to all these things to find our approval, to find our acceptance, to find our joy, to find our satisfaction that we know won't satisfy. Yet we keep filling our lives with all these things that we already have. And that's what he's saying here. He's saying, don't forget God. Don't forget me is what God is screaming to his people. Don't forget me. Forget yourself. Don't be consumed with yourself. Be consumed with me. 
And the thing is, is we will have trinkets and toys and stuff to consume our lives till we die. What are you going to be consumed with? What are you going to cling to? God's saying, cling to me as your treasure. If you pray to God, what does it look like? And what I mean by that, what does it look like? Is, is God merely the means to the ends? Do you pray, God, can I, I'm praying for this, uh, I want this. And if you don't get that, do you find yourself frustrated with God? Because in the end, what you're probably living for is that thing. You're not living for God, you're living for that thing. He is the means to the ends. Essentially, He is the key that opens the treasure, whatever that is for you. And for Israel, it was herds and cattle and gold and silver. And we see here, underneath all this, is not that God is being forgotten, but we are consumed with ourselves. We're consumed with ourselves. And that essentially will kill us. I have uh, family friends, uh, Rachel and I know, um, in uh, Houston, who were living in the mountains. They're working at a camp. And while they're living, they're working at this camp. They are getting ready to go to bed at one night. And um, everyone starts complaining about a headache. Everyone's got a headache. Everyone starts feeling like they're going to get sick. They have the flu. So the mom kind of saying, okay, well, everyone just needs to go to sleep. Next thing she knows, her husband falls out in the bathroom. Her son falls out in the bedroom. They don't know what's going on. The cat even falls over. And the wife, what's going on? I don't know. I don't know. And she's like, well, let's just, let's just open the door. Let's open the windows, open the doors. What they didn't know is they were being poisoned by carbon monoxide. Odorless invisible and tasteless was killing them. And most of us don't even know it, but our pride is doing the same thing to us. We don't see it, but it's behind every action that we have. And it's odorless, and it's tasteless, and it's invisible, and it's going to kill you, and it's going to kill every relationship that you have. Because all you're consumed with is you. And that's what Israel is living for here. And that's what we find ourselves living for. And that's what he's trying to warn them about here. He's trying to warn them, don't forget God. Remember Him. He goes on here and he explains why not to forget God. He's going to give us God's resume. And he says this here in verse 14. Then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do good, to do you good in the end. So what he's saying here, he's saying, you have no basis 
in your life to be consumed with yourself. You have no justification in your life to say, I will worship me and not worship God. Because that's what Israel is dealing with here. They're saying, no, we're going to worship ourselves. We're going to consume all this stuff and enjoy that and embrace that and forget him. And he's saying, you have no basis to do that. Because God is the one who brought you out of slavery. He's the one who fed you. He's the one who gave you water from the rock. So let's see here. They had poverty and God gave them prosperity. They had slavery and he gave them freedom. They had harm, he gave them protection. They had want and he satisfied them. Everything in their life, God had given them. And I think a lot of times our theology, if we really think about it, if we really get behind it all, is not a theology of gratitude for what God has done for us, but it's a theology of entitlement. If you find yourself saying at points of, oh, I deserve this, this is what I deserve, that is called a theology of entitlement. That you've somehow arrived at a point and you deserve to get something. And what God is saying is here, you don't deserve anything good, but yet he has been kind, he's been gracious to you, and you need to remember that. Don't forget that. And if you keep on living your life in such a way as Israel is, you will inebriate yourself. You will inoculate yourself to God completely. And we see here that God ordains the wilderness. God ordains the wilderness for his people. He ordains the desert. He ordains the tough times. And some of you here might not be feeling that you're walking in plenty. You might be feeling that you're in the wilderness. That something in your life, some situation, is bigger and more difficult than you ever thought you'd be able to bear. And God is wanting to strip off the pride in your life. He's wanting to strip off the consuming presence of yourself in your life. I know Paul's probably told this story because it's one story I remember he always told, would tell. It was the story of Eudas from the voyage of the Dante. Have you told that? Okay. Most of you probably know this story, but it still has the same application here. That Eudas was a boy who turned into a dragon. And he keeps trying to rip off these, these scales of the dragon. He doesn't want to have these on him anymore. He keeps ripping them off, but what happens? They keep coming back. And then Oslin comes. And C.S. Lewis, I don't remember the story exactly, but he says that the nail went so deep. It went so deep to rip him open, to free him, that God will hurt you to heal you, that God will bring you through the wilderness to rescue you. Because it's the only way to rescue prideful people is to bring them to a place where they have nothing. And that's what God's doing here. He's bringing them to the desert. His ultimate goal is to humble his people. He wants to humble them. He wants to bring them through. And ultimately, if you're going through this situation right now, that you'd be able to look and see how is God shaping me and humbling me right now through this situation. And some of you right now are probably thinking about a time maybe where God humbled you, where God brought you through the wilderness, where God ordained the wilderness in your life so that you would look and say, I can't depend on myself but on Him. And ultimately behind all this, it's a signpost. 
It's a signpost to remember that God is faithful. And God is faithful not because He gives you everything you want, but because He is faithful to be your rock when everything else is taken away. He's faithful not because He gives you everything you want, but because He is faithful to be your rock when everything else is taken away. And that's the problem with pride is we don't see it. We don't see the effects that it has on our lives. And the wilderness goal is to humble us. The goal is that we wouldn't forget ourselves or we would forget ourselves and we remember God. And if we're not humble, we're going to forget the warning that he gives us, which is the next part. In his warning, he says, God's warning. We're going to read on verse 17 through 20. He says this, Beware, lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gotten me in this wealth. You should remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you power to get wealth, that He may confirm His covenant that He swore to your fathers, as it is this day. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so shall you perish because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. So he starts off here, he gives us a warning. He says, beware. Um, Most of you can probably think of a warning sign you've probably seen somewhere. Don't go here, don't do this, don't trespass. Um, I went on a trip to South Africa a couple years back and we went to a lion park. Has anyone been to a lion park before? Anyone? Okay. Okay, okay, good. Um, so you, being a, a line park, it's kind of broken up in different sections. So the first section we go into is the one where you have all these little lions. It says, beware, be gentle with them, take care of them. You know, um, you can have pictures, but, you know, don't overdo it. You know, and we're in there with all these little lions, and, you know, it's, 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 it's a lot of fun because, you know, you're hitting them around, you know, you're like, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot of fun. And, um, with these lions, you begin to take pictures, you're opening up their teeth, you're putting your hands in their mouth, and um, everyone is kind of wondering uh, what is going to happen. I mean, are we going to get you know, in trouble for this? And you know, they give us this warning, and you know, we're having fun, having a blast, and we're you know, just sitting there hanging out with them, and next thing you know, you hear this roar on the other side of the park. And we go over to the other side of the park, and they begin to tell us, Don't get too close. Don't touch the fence. And everyone just sits there and stares at this massive lion who is 20 feet from you. And you are 5 feet from the fence. And different warnings play different roles with us because, well, we place greater fear with greater obedience. If we see something that has a greater fear of consequence, then we'll place it with greater obedience. I wasn't going to get close to that fence. And most of you probably wouldn't either. And that's what he's saying here is, how are you going to take God's warning into your life? Not to be consumed with yourself, but to be consumed with him. 
And you guys have warnings all the time. You know, we can have some confession time here. How many of you actually obey the speed limit? Honestly, you know, everyone here drives 45 and a 45. Everyone here drives 35 and a 35. All right, yeah, you're laughing, which means you're guilty. How many of you coming into Wilmington from I-40 see the sign, says 55 miles an hour, red flags on it. I mean, they've got everything going to tell you, hey, you're ready to slow down. And you actually do slow down. And why is that? Because nine times out of ten times, you come over that last hill into Wilmington, there's a state trooper sitting there ready to tag you. And if you didn't know that, you're welcome. <laughs> so the knowing that there is a fear of consequence that I might get a ticket, I am definitely going to go 55 at this point. And God here gives us this warning. He says here, Verse 17, beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. I mean, here's a perfect example to show. These people are self-consumed. They're consumed with themselves. And here's the problem is, a lot of people to fix their consuming lifestyle will take on religion. A lot of people who enjoy their lifestyle of consuming things will actually take on religion as a way of consuming more things. And God at that point not, does not become the king, but com- becomes the hostage. And people end up living their lives out of what they have done. And if something comes into their life that we, they weren't expecting, something tragic, that they would say, I can't believe God did this. Well, why is that? But because they thought that they had earned something. They had earned an approval. They had earned an acceptance that they hadn't had before. And that at this point that people live in the complete consumption of themselves, that they would say, oh, well, because I pray, or because I read my Bible, or because I'm here today, that I deserve something from God. Because I volunteer, because I give my money, that God owes me something. And what we've done is we've fallen not into just entitlement, but religious entitlement. That God owes me something because I've given up something. Romans 11.35 says that, Who has given a gift to God that he should be repaid? Who's given a gift to God that he should be repaid? So here's a way to kind of capsize that. If you, um, ever Christmas time, you have someone who comes up to you unexpected, maybe Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, drops a present off. Hey, got a present for you. Merry Christmas. And you weren't planning on getting them that present? You had no idea that they were going to give you a present. And then you're stuck, right? Oh, I can't look bad. I need to get them a present. That's how we deal with God a lot of times. Hey, God, I've given you this. That money, the offering went by. Dropped it right in. You shake it a little bit before you drop it right in. God, I did this. God, I, I read my Bible today. I prayed. God, I, I, uh, I did my defense. I let that person, you know, the, you're at the traffic light and you're like, oh, that person wants to get in. I know they want to get in. Okay. I, I, I did my deed for the day. I deserve this, God. 
God doesn't work on those terms because everything that you have in your life that is good from Him, it's good from Him. It comes from Him. James says every good and perfect gift comes from who? The Father of lights. Every good and perfect gift comes from Him. And in your life as you begin to think about this, as you begin to try to put this into your system of thought, that God has given you everything in your life. Everything that you have is from Him. And for you to say, oh God, you owe me this, it'd be like a four-year-old going to their parent and saying, hey, I really appreciate this Fisher-Price thing, but I'll have it back and can I take the money? When knowing that the toy that they got came from them, and that's what we do. We do this with God. We say, because I've done this, you owe me this. And he goes on here in verse 19, he says this, and if you forget the Lord your God, and go after other gods and serve them and worship them. I solemnly warn you today that you shall perish. So he says here that they're going to worship these other gods. So the question is, what is worship? What is worship for you and me? Because a lot of times we think, I worship at 10.30 on Sunday morning with Paul Phillips. And apparently he's been bringing convicting sermons. So... Um, but that's what worship is to you. Well, the Bible defines worship as anything in your life that you claim to be ultimate. Anything in your life. And the sad thing is in our lives, we claim created things to be ultimate in our life. The one who deserves ultimate allegiance in our life isn't. Because we fall for such trivial things. What do you look to to find your ultimate acceptance, your ultimate approval? That is where you'll find what you worship. And the thing is, it's pretty easy to find what you worship because if I look at your bank statement, if I look at your planner, it'd be pretty easy for us to tell. Because time and money don't lie. Time and money won't lie on what you spend your time on and what you invest in. And us, like Israel, we've taken good things and we've taken bad things and we've made them ultimate things. Just like Israel, we've taken good things like family and wives and husbands and jobs and we've turned them into ultimate things that only God was meant to reign there. Anyone here watch The Office? Is anyone an Office watcher? Okay. For those of you who don't watch The Office, it's a show that's pretty popular these days. It's basically a stereotypical office job with cubicles and everything. And it's built off of a documentary type system where they interview people. It's, it's, it's a show, but it's not really a documentary, but it takes place like a documentary where they interview people. How's your day going? What's the week going like? If we followed you around like the office through this next week, what would we say about your life? What would we say that you worship? Would we say that you worship God or that you just worshiped yourself? And you did everything you could to pour into yourself and forget him. And this is what Israel does. And this is what the nations do. As he says here in verse 20, Like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so shall you perish because you do not obey the voice of the Lord your God. 
So we see here the nations are consumed with themselves. That Israel is consumed with themselves. And that ultimately we are consumed with ourselves and not God. And that's the problem that we face. And honestly, in our culture and in our society, we're taught nothing else to be consumed with ourselves. We're taught nothing else but to forget God. We're wired that way. All we're doing is just feeding the fire. You're taught to climb the corporate ladder. You're taught to destroy the competition. You're taught that if something doesn't look right with your beauty or your appearance, you need to fix it. You're taught if you're missing something in your life, you need to have it. Billions and billions and billions of dollars are spent so you would be more consumed with yourself. And studies are even shown in the church that people will pad their resume, that people will steal on the job to do things, to get ahead. And we don't even have to talk about the divorce rating in the church, which is on par, if not more, than the world. And all this is, is we are forgetting God for the next thing. And then that's a dot, dot, dot. And then the next thing. And then when that doesn't satisfy, the next thing. So we finally inoculate ourselves that we can come to church and we can hear a message and then we can walk out unchanged. Speaking of divorce, I read this fascinating article about this man in Australia, and I want to read it to you. In Sydney, a man in, uh, in, a man in Australia is auctioning his life, his house, his job, his clothes, and his friends on eBay after his marriage broke up, saying he wants to start a new life. It's time to move on, a completely fresh start. I want to see where my life takes me. Ian Usher, 44, told Australian television on Tuesday from Perth in Western Australia. He's auctioning his life, and then he goes on and says, When it's over, I just want to walk out the front door, take my wallet, my passport, and start a new life, he said. Usher said his ex-wife had heard of his auction. Her last comment was, It seems a bit mental to me, she said. It seems a bit mental. Why is it mental? Why is it mental that someone would give up everything that they've ever worked for, everything that they have, everything that's their identity? Why would they give that up? Because we're taught not to forget ourselves. We're taught not to be consumed with God. We're taught to forget Him. Why would we run and auction ourselves out? Why would we give up everything that we have for Him? Why would we be consumed with him and not consumed with ourselves? Because one did. You see, on the cross, Jesus, who was rich, became poor so that you could become rich. He had the ultimate wealth. He had the ultimate possessions. He had everything, and he gave it all up for you. He was in the form of God. He had ultimate bragging rights. If there was anyone who had entitlement, he had it. And yet he gave up everything for God and for you. His obedience in this life should have gained him his life. But yet he lost his life. He lost his life for you to pay the sacrifice that you couldn't pay. His obedience should have gained his father's approval. It should have said, look, well done, good and faithful servant. 
But yet, he lost his father's approval. His father said, my, he said to his father, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He lost his father's approval for you. So that you could come in. He wasn't consumed with himself. He was consumed with his father. You, we ask ourselves, how are we going to affect the city of Wilmington? How are we going to impact the city? Here's one way. We don't live for the same things they live for. We don't forget God how they've forgotten God. But we live for the greater treasure. We live for Him. How do I, how do I, we don't ask how can I keep getting promoted more and more to my job? How can I find more acceptance and more money in my job? But we say, you know, I will lay down my life because Jesus has laid down his life for me. We won't say, Jesus, I want some respect from my wife. I'm tired of my wife not respecting me. But that we would say that because Jesus laid down his, his life for his wife, I'll lay down my life for my wife. Because as wives sit there thinking, I want my husband to love me more that they realized that there was one who ultimately loved you and gave himself up for you. That you could love your husband in a way that you never thought possible. So you could look at money and you won't be in bondage to it. But if you look at it at what it is, it's money. It's just something. And it won't have ultimate permanence in your life. That it would just be money and that you would give it away. And you would do whatever it takes because him who was rich became poor for you. When we remember that Jesus had everything and he gave it up, we can begin to forget ourselves and remember him. Let's pray. Father, I confess it's so hard sometimes to forget ourselves because our culture and our world just cry out to us to be consumed with ourselves. It's so easy to forget you, to drift down the sea, to forget who is ultimate in our lives, and to forget your son that he paid it all, that he ransomed us, that he rescued us from the life that we lived. And Father, as we bring our offering to you that we'd realize that it's not a duty but it's worship it's a way we say thank you thank you for our jobs thank you for all that you've given us that we understand that your son became poor for us that we might become rich that we could give away everything because we have ultimate acceptance in you we praise in his name amen